Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a joy. Daniel Kurtzfeilen went to the University of Jonathan Spence, also known as Yale University, and turned it into a China watch. He has been involved with government, including writing speeches for uh, Secretary Clinton, and has now been anointed with the worst job in diplomacy, which is filling Gideon Rose's shoes at Foreign Affairs, where he has been named editor. Daniel Kurtzfeilen joins us uh, this morning. Daniel, I want to go to the United States. I know Lisa's very much focused abroad. We had Adam Posen on with his nostalgia of of America. Are we drowning in nostalgia right now? I think you see this across across both parties right now. There's so much focus on how we get back to economic strengths of the past that there are ways in which we're failing to uh, realize the opportunities of the future. This Adam Posen piece, The Price of Nostalgia, focuses on the trade aspects of this. There's been this really fascinating shift against what had been a pretty strong free trade consensus across across both parties for some time. And the, the narrative you tend to hear now is that we have done too much trade, integrated too much with the world, and that has reinforced inequality, displaced workers. Uh, Adam Posen's argument is that, in fact, for the last 20 years, when we've seen this period of rising inequality and stagnating wages mm-hmm. across a lot of industries, uh, we've, in fact, been retreating from the world and trying to to uh, retreat further is only going to reinforce those trends. Uh, Daniel, in honor of John Williamson dying here in the last number of days, the nostalgia of the Washington consensus. Everybody wants to go back to when it was cozy, when it was comfortable. What does our new Washington consensus look like? So you can see some of the outlines of this in the Biden administration. There's much more uh, attempt to to uh, have the state, have the government direct certain portions of the economy. There's much more focus on the international competition. I know you were just talking about the United States and China, but much more focus on how, uh, what country controls different parts of the supply chain, where semiconductors are manufactured, where green technology is manufactured. Uh, Those are going to be the battles of the future. Adam Posen and others in in this package that leads the major initiatives of foreign affairs, uh, try to take a, a look at this that is not about just Uh, pulling these things back into our own borders or making these all kind of domestic industries. But really think about how we shape the global economy in a way that addresses those security concerns, but also uh, realizes economic gains both for Americans in a broad-based way, but also that really shapes the global economy. That's a lot of work to do, Dan. So let's pick up on that word consensus, how you establish consensus on an issue like the Chinese Communist Party right now, how you get the European allies to come along with you. So this is, I think, the kind of key tension in the Biden-China policy. The Biden administration, I think in a way that has surprised a lot of people, came really out of the gate trying to set a pretty hard line on China. As I think one of your your previous guests said, they made clear as they came into office that they were not going back to some pre-Trump consensus on engagement with China, but really continuing the hard line. Their, their change, the thing that they're trying to do differently than the Trump administration, is doing that with allies, whether that's you know, Japan, you saw you saw the uh, Japanese prime minister in Washington Friday, whether it's with our NATO allies, with uh, with the Quad, uh, India, Japan and Australia and our, our partners in in the rest of Asia. Uh, the problem is that a lot of these allies have different views about how you compete with China. So you saw this on Europe most strongly. Europe was striking a, an investment deal with China at the same time that 
the United States was uh, trying to craft this allied front against against the Chinese Communist Party and against Chinese influence. So it's this very, very delicate balancing act where the United States wants to, wants to sustain this hard line, but it wants to do it with as many allies and partners as it can. And that creates a certain tension. You know, this is really the strength of the United States. And I think the Biden administration has, uh, has tried to keep this in mind. We go into this competition with China with an incredible range of allies and partners, both in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, China doesn't bring a lot to that fight when you think about it in those terms. Well, let's build on that tension, though. The issue, as you know, through economic history, at the center of a global system is a hegemon that brings everyone else with them. Right now, we can't get the Chinese Communist Party to come with us. And that's the issue. The major miscalculation of the last several decades and arguably laced with arrogance was this idea that the Chinese Communist Party would want to be more like us, to embrace the system that we've all benefited from. And Dan, that's not going to happen. So I guess the issue that I have every time this comes up, and I'm always asking this question, what kind of system can we and our allies embrace if China doesn't want any part of it, doesn't want to play by the same rules? That, that's a great point. And look, I, I wrote a book about U.S. policy toward China in the 1940s, and you can see exactly that, that mistake going back really to the, the beginning of the American relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, with Communist China, this notion that with just a, the, the right amount of trade, the right amount of diplomatic engagement, the Chinese would really come to see the world the way we do. And, you know, back when I was writing about, uh, about George Marshall in the 1940s in China, that was an illusion that we, we clung to pretty bitterly. Uh, you see that in some of the China policy of the, the 1990s and the, in the 2000s, this notion that with just the right amount of, you know, capitalism or, or trade or diplomacy, the Chinese would come to really see the world the way we do. And, and that illusion, I think, has, um, has, has fallen apart over the last four years. I think the question is, can you use competition? Can you use pressure from that coalition to bring, to bring the Chinese along? We're seeing something like that with climate change right now. The Biden administration is going to hold a climate summit at the White House on Thursday. And they've tried to say, look, we want the Chinese to, to come along. We realize that China is the biggest emitter of carbon in the world right now. The U.S. is the second. Only if these two countries are able to do something meaningful on climate change does the world have any hope of, of uh, beating this challenge. But we can't, uh, we can't try too hard to bring, to bring the Chinese along. We need to bring a kind of competitive edge to this where we show leadership, we show an ability to, to, to shape the global global action on this question or working with our allies and that China feels really pressure to come along for its own interests, not because uh, we expect that with the right amount of diplomacy, the Chinese are simply going to see the world the way we do. And the global warming uh, discussion is a bigger one that we're going to be having throughout this week. I do want to go back to the U.S.-China tensions paired with this disenchantment with the way that globalization really worked for a lot of people within the United States and elsewhere. What is the modern version of globalization that economists that you quoted and had in your magazine seem to think is the path forward? So one, one really interesting element of this, I think when we talk about trade, we tend to think of, you know, traditional manufacturing and steel, uh, maybe services. There's, there's one essay in this set of pieces on trade by Matt Slaughter and David McCormick. David McCormick's the CEO of, of Bridgewater, Matt Slaughter's at Dartmouth, they were both uh, senior economic officials in the George W. Bush administration. They make the point that when you talk about global trade, increasingly, increasingly we're talking about about data, about data flows, which have grown something like a hundred times in the last the last ten years. And that's really the the future of global trade. That's a lot of what we're talking about, and we're talking about these these conflicts over trade going forward. Uh, China is working very hard to shape 
global governance of data. You know, they have this kind of techno-authoritarian model, which applies domestically, but also shapes the way they engage with other countries, the kind of economic model the, the Chinese are trying to bring to the rest of the world. And as Slaughter and McCormick argue, the U.S. really hasn't gone that far in trying to put forth an alternate vision of global governance. So when we talk about the trade battles of the future, there's likely to be about data as they are to be over, you know, steel tariffs and the the uh, traditional trade battles that we're all pretty familiar with. And the question is, which of these global countries is going to go out and shape some kind of global policy about this? And this applies to everything from, you know, how these are taxed to um, to to privacy and yeah. all, all the issues that we're familiar with domestically. Those are international issues as well. And only if the United States goes out and tries to put forward, it tries to build some kind of coalition, tries to put some forward, some kind of global rules to define data trade going forward. Uh, otherwise, other countries are going to are going to step in and do that themselves. And that's probably not going to be a model. It's probably not going to be an approach that we're going to be especially happy with. Just quickly here, I'm wondering, you're saying that people think that the U.S. is behind China and coming up with a governance of global data. Meanwhile, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, said that the U.S. was behind China when it came to taking advantage of new job opportunities resulting from fighting climate change. Is the presiding sentiment that the U.S. is falling way behind on a lot of the most important issues? I think that's been the, the, the view over the past few years, whether that's on data whether that's on the technology that goes into uh, into renewables, kind of green technology. This is, I think, at the heart of some of what the Biden administration is trying to do with this infrastructure package. You know, we're having this debate now about what infrastructure looks like. Some of that is uh, 20th century infrastructure. That's, you know, roads and bridges, what I think most of us think of when we look at infrastructure. The Biden administration is trying to make this case that this really should be about um, how you uh, uh, um, renovate buildings to make them more energy efficient, how you invest in these future technologies. That's a politically fraught issue. You know, we can go back to the the Solyndra controversy of the Obama administration to, to see what happens when you make some of these investments that go wrong. But the, the case they're trying to make is that when we think about infrastructure, when we think about investments in ways that are going to be key to the competition of the future, whether that's on on data and technology, whether that's on on renewables, uh, that we need to think about these questions much more broadly than we have traditionally. Dan, you and I and the team are going to be talking about this for a long, long time. Dan Kersfield right. in there, Foreign Affairs right. Editor. Great to catch up with you, sir. Jim Kerry with us now, Morgan Stanley Investment Management Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Jim, let's start with credit, shall we? Some of these companies, some of this universe is actually stronger than it was 12 months ago. Jim, some people struggle to see that. Can you just explain it for us? Yeah, it's all about cash flow, right? So effectively, what people were able to do in the last 12 months is with rates so low and the aid of QE is that many corporations were able to refinance their debt for longer terms and at lower interest rates. And what we also have to recognize is that as the economy recovers, you get this cash flow that starts to come back into the market. That cash flow for a bond investor is key because that's what's going to keep default risk down. So as the economy is growing, and we expect it to grow this year, next year, and in the year following. And as that cash flow stays very, very positive, and as long as we don't expect interest rates to rise substantially consistently over the next several years, and that means that the refinancing risk of all the debt that they've taken on is still going to come at a very, very low rate. And right now, spreads are tight, as you've been pointing out. And as long as that doesn't widen so much, 
it basically sets up for um, better interest coverage rates, meaning the amount of, of payment that you have to pay on the debt that you have outstanding. So those start to look better, especially with the backdrop of an expectation of a better and growing economy with more positive cash flow. So that's why credit's doing well. Jim, I want you to synthesize the x-axis. It's HSBC on it today. You're Ellen Zettner's been great. Matt Hornbach's been great, et cetera. I want you to synthesize the game of guessing the when of this and the direction of some of these arguments about we're going to see higher yields, we're going to see lower yields. How's the x-axis playing? Well, the, the way that I think about it is that the tails are fat on both sides. So if effectively, yes, we have a lot of monetary expansion and there could be some inflation risks and all of those risks have gone up because of what we're doing. Um, but on the other side of that, what we have to question is that have things structurally really changed? Where we were prior to the pandemic is that we had structural disinflation. And the reason was is that we had an aging population, which is demographics, we had technology and all the other factors that have been pushing prices lower. Has that just magically gone away? Has the aging population, has the technology and everything else, is that really gone at this point? And if the answer to that is no, then those structural factors are going to reassert themselves and do at least keep yields from rising out of control or excessively high. Now, if we start to get, you know, over the next 12 months, if the data starts to, you know, slow down, which we do think the rate of growth will start to slow down over the next 12 months, but still stay positive, will it be enough to generate consistent de-anchored inflation? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. It's not, is inflation a risk? Yes, it's a risk. It's always a risk. Can rates go up? Sure. But is inflation becoming de-anchored where we expect growth rate of, of prices to consistently move higher over this year, next year, the year after, the year after that, and the year after that? And once that gets ingrained in psychology, one can think that, you know, yields could stay high. But until that starts to happen, I still think that we're in a relatively low yielding environment. And I can't dismiss a tail of 2% move in the 10-year Treasury, and I can't dismiss a tail of something closer to 1% either. It really just depends on how all of this unfolds. And Jim, that's the rate story. Going back to the credit story, and I'm really glad that John brought up Netflix. It's a great story. And frankly, it has survived and thrived during the pandemic. There are also the stories of United Air, which came out yesterday and said it would stop losing money only when business and international travel recovered to 65 percent of where it was back in 2019, which seems like a tall feat given the pace of vaccinations. Would you say overall, on average, the majority of companies have a better balance sheet now than pre-pandemic? Is it 50-50? How is the overall profile based on where it used to be? I think it's just like you said, it's very idiosyncratic, right? So it depends, you know, if you're looking at the cruise lines, if you're looking at the airlines, you're looking at some very, very specific uh, sectors of the economy that were very, very hard hit by the pandemic. When you look at, say, the broader industrials, when you look at, say, paper packaging, when you look at other areas, you, we could even look at leisure. All of these areas can start to actually get, um, you know, better balance sheets to the extent that they have been able to, many companies have been able to refinance their debt for longer terms and at lower interest rates. So in that sense, there, there, there's a cohort of companies that are out there that do have stronger looking balance sheets. And that's mainly in the investment grade sectors. And I would say that many of the financials actually have come out looking like they have a lot stronger balance sheets. But then there are other sectors still like the reopening sectors, the, the sectors that get the hardest hit. So these are, as you pointed out, the airlines and some of the cruise lines and, and things of that nature that 
you know, that's really going to depend on the, the vaccine, the rollout, how quickly that happens, how quickly people are willing to get back on an airplane and start traveling, which, by the way, I think will be pretty quick. I think the speed at which people return to that will be faster than most people think. Jim, it's good to catch up, sir. As always, Jim Karen Morgan, Stanley Investment Management, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Right now, and this is a joy, Benjamin Laidler not only has done it once, twice, but indeed three times in a row, he's made a major bull market call and been right, right, right. Holding court at HSBC for years and then on to uh, different projects, we are thrilled that Ben Laidler gives us a first interview with eToro, Yanni Asiya's uh, Israeli operation. It is big in digital and moving over to the equity markets. And Mr. Laidler will provide global market strategy for uh, eToro. Uh, ben Laidler, can you reaffirm now your very lonely double-digit equity return for 2021? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't think it's a forecast anymore, though. I mean, we're up what, 11 percent for the year. So I think it's really a question of sort of hanging on to what we've got, um, which, which is, is going to be, you know, uh, pretty historic. Right. I mean, we've had, uh, I think, only twice in the last 50 years that we had this sort of three in a row strong equity markets. So, um, yes, I, I think we do. Valuations are very high, but I think earnings are just going to keep uh, keep surprising. I think first quarter, which we're obviously in the middle of reporting right now, is going to be um, you know, the latest, I think. But I, I still think with these sort of top line growth numbers being revised up and all this operating leverage, that this earnings story is going to keep uh, is going to keep delivering. And, and that, I think, really is, yeah. um, you know, the, the foundation here. Given the Laidler bull market, what is your experience or guesstimate of what they will do with all that cash? We're already seeing buybacks being the, fla the favor of the moment, flavor of the moment. Yeah, I think you're going to see more of, frankly, everything, right? I mean, uh, you're seeing more buybacks, you're seeing more dividends. I mean, sort of dividend and buyback strategies have, you know, have recovered from, you know, beginning to recover from how badly they did last year. Uh, I, you know, you're going to see a pickup in CapEx as well, which I think is really important to keep an eye on because I think, you know, we're talking a lot about this year, but really what we should be, you know, caring about is what next year begins to look like, right? I mean, consensus says 12% earnings growth for next year. That seems a little bit pedestrian compared to this year. You know, we want to see more than that. If uh, if this rally is really going to continue, and um, I think capex is going to be, you know, capex is going to be an important part of that, and and I think how consumers sort of spend down this sort of fifteen percent uh, sort of access savings they have right now. Ben, you've been a stock bull. You have been right again and again. There is a question out in markets right now of whether a 1.6% Treasury yield in the 10-year is incoherent with the optimism that we're seeing in stocks. Well, I guess there's 10 years of inflation history that, or, you know, or 30 years of sort of bull market history that would sort of argue against that. But, you know, to, to your point, I mean, I think bond yields are going to go up. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons I think markets are so resilient is we've just been hugely stress tested here, right, with this bond yield tantrum um, and, and sort of markets sort of survived. So I think bond yields are going up. I think equities can survive that as long as it's sort of a moderate rise for the right reasons, i.e., you know, growth growth uh, expectations continue to move higher. And I fully expect that to be the case. And and, and just more broadly, um, you know, bond yields are important, but it's not just about bond yields, right? I mean, bond yields uh, were at 1.9%, you know, coming into last year and markets were fine with that. And, you know, bond yields are zero or negative in the rest of the world, and that's not helping their equity markets. So, you know, bond yields are important, but 
you know, there's a lot more to that. Corporate profitability, the earnings recovery, all of which I think is, um, is, is very, very healthy here. Corporate profitability and earnings potential, is that isolated to the United States? Are you seeing the opportunity set shift to Europe or perhaps even beyond? Yeah, absolutely. I think this, we've been in this sort of global rotation trade. I mean, it started off with China, sort of first in, first out, you know, best performing major market last year. You know, now we've had this sort of U.S. exceptionalism with the sort of vaccine rollout and, uh, and, and, and the stimulus. And obviously, U.S. sort of led the world among major markets in the first quarter. I think the story sort of looking into the second half is the rest of the world. I mean, Europe's going to grow earnings probably twice as much as the U.S., uh, so this quarter, if I look at where the economic surprises are coming from, and frankly, and they're coming everywhere, but they've been led by sort of Europe and the UK. So I think as you sort of look further out, this, um, you know, I think as Europe begins to get its act together on the sort of vaccine rollout, which I think they will ultimately, um, I think you begin to look for some sort of catch up uh, performance there where, you know, valuations are cheaper, earnings more depressed and, and, and you know, it's a much bigger sort of cyclical component to those indices. I mean, Ben, so far year to date, SPX up 11 percent. And the big surprise there has been the reaffirmation of big tech and sort of the story. So when Ben Laidler was right the second or the first time as well, your thoughts on big tech, do you participate with them or is the international story so compelling? You got to go there. Which is it? Uh, I, I think the leadership is going to be sort of international plus sort of value. But, and it's a big but, uh, you have to believe in tech, right? If you don't believe in tech, uh, it's just got so big, then equities just don't work. Um, and, and I still think the, equity, the tech equity story still works. It's a different story. I mean, it's sort of this longer term structural story, which I think is going to keep giving. I mean, growth is still going to be very good. There's big moats here. There's high profitability. None of that is going away. But here and now, you know, the catch up trade is the value. That's where you're getting this you know, four or five times earnings leverage to what's happening on the uh, to what's happening on the top line. And Ben, there is a question as you talk about the global look for the opportunity and you say that China was the first in first out. I want to bring you these headlines from a uh, PBOC uh, member, basically that China has deficient equity capital. It has insufficient long term capital. And this is why they have such high macro leverage. This kind of feeds into the People's Bank of China's effort to reduce leverage in the system, moving in the opposite direction than a lot of other central banks around the world. How does this affect your view on the assets in China, which we have seen underperforming pretty consistently over the past month at least. Do you think that that underperformance will continue based on where they are in the tightening cycle? So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, they are at a different point in the cycle, right? I mean, the central banks just held rates at sort of 4% for one year, uh, you know, one year rate. I mean, look where the rest of the world is, right? So, you know, they're, they're at a different you know, point in the cycle. Um, but I think there's sort of two things going on here. I mean, similar, there's this sort of cyclical story, which I think incrementally is going to tighten. But there's a long term sort of structural story. I mean, they are going to keep opening up that capital market, both on the equity side, you know, and on the fixed income side to attract more uh, foreign capital. And I think that's going to dramatically expand mm -hmm. the sort of bottom up opportunity yeah. set for sort of fund managers going forward. Ben, I want you to address what I call the Friday gloom crew. There's a cottage industry, at least in America. I don't know if you see it over in the pond over in London, but there's a cottage industry that wanders out Thursday evening into Friday and reaffirms and re-rationalizes the walls of worry that are out there. How do you respond to that industry? Listen, I want, well, you know, I, I want that wall of worry, right? If it didn't exist, then, you know, where's your incremental buyer coming from? Um, I actually think markets are becoming 
you know, more secure, not sort of less secure here. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, the breadth of this recovery is now dramatically different than it was uh, sort of last year. I mean, it was all tech last year. Now it's sort of everything. It's sort of this everything rally right now, which I think is sort of much more sustainable. You know, the threats to the rally, I mean, the Fed making a sort of policy mistake, you know, I think they've been very consistent in their sort of messaging. So I think that risk has sort of come down a bit. And the sort of investor over-exuberance, um, you know, I think the market's been very smart. I mean, you sort of pull back in IPO performance, pull back in sort of EV performance, pull back in sort of solar. I mean, all these sort of micro sort of bubbles that the market was maybe getting a little concerned about, they've all sort of, you know, pulled back yeah. a little bit. I mean, that's not to say I'm completely complacent. I mean, earnings do need to really keep delivering here with valuations where they are. But, you know, actually, I think risks have been coming down a little bit, actually, not, 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 not going up. Ben Laidler, thank you so much. Congratulations for the new effort with eToro. Mr. Laidler, of course, is uh, enthusiastic about the market. Lee Ferris joins us right now with State Street, head of America's macro strategy, writer of really cogent notes. We'll get to Liverpool, uh, Lee Ferris, in a moment. Right now, I want to get to your affirmation of a 130 call on euro. Can Germany, can Europe stand that strong of a euro? Um, it won't be easy, for sure. But I, the problem they have is, what do they do about it? I mean, the, the bottom line is that the, the, the Fed is not moving rates anytime soon. So what you have is a very, very steep curve in the U.S., and that means for, for, for Eurozone investors, for Japanese investors, they can buy treasuries and they can hedge their FX. Right now, a Eurozone investor can buy treasuries, 10-year treasuries, hedge their FX for three months. They're earning 120 basis points over buns, right? They're going to do that all day long. That means the U.S. current account deficit does not get paid for by the bond market. So you have a basic balance shortfall. In that world, the dollar has to go down. So we saw over the last couple of months, we saw this upgrade of U.S. growth expectations. We saw yields push up. Short-term momentum traders bought the dollar. We had a big underweight in the dollar. That got closed out. And now, as things calm down, the default for the dollar will be for the dollar to go down. If we haven't got more good news, if we haven't got rates going up, if we don't have a short squeeze, the default for the dollar will be this drift lower, drift lower, drift lower. And that's what we've seen over the last few weeks. And that's a game where we are now. And this is why, for me, that's going to be the default this year. We're about to dollar strength, but they'll be short-lived. And then the default will be this dollar drift down. And that's how we get to 130. Lee, just in terms of the deficit, can you help us understand why this dynamic is so different to what we saw in the previous cycle? Well, the difference is the ability to hedge. The previous cycle, the Fed, you know, from 2016, 2017 onwards was leading the way in terms of hiking rates, right? So they were hiking, no one else was hiking. So therefore, foreign investors couldn't buy treasuries hedged because the amount they paid on the hedge cost them all the yield premium they were picking up. So you attracted capital to the U.S. FX unhedged. If the Fed aren't playing the game, if the Fed are keeping rates down close to zero in line with everywhere else, the hedging works. So if the hedging works, the dollar goes down, and that's the difference this time. It's the, the reaction function of the Fed. They're not hiking into this strength like they were in 17 and 18, which pushed the dollar up. If the Fed don't hike, the dollar goes down. So, Lee, let's build on that. If you want to play that theme, what's the best way of expressing it right now? Right now in Q2, I think, I think we are getting to the state. I mean, you know, I, I like Euro higher, I like Dolly Yen lower, but they're drifts. They're, they're, they're slow, gradual grinds. I think we're actually in Q2 in a stage where, where EM starts to perform better again. You know, we've priced in a lot of good news for the U.S., an awful lot of good news in terms of growth. 
you know, yields have gone up, yields are now back in a range. So you have this sort of positive growth outlook, you have yields in a range, you're having no reaction from the Fed. That's sort of an ideal world for EM. But you've got to be selective. And you mentioned before about the COVID cases going up in, in various places. You have to be really selective. You have to be wary of, of, of domestic issues as well. You know, we like Mex. You know, Mex is, is a proxy to the U.S., it's a direct proxy, obviously gives you some yield. You know, Mex is one of our favorites. We also like South Africa as a sort of reasonably liquid wow. EM proxy as well. But, but we're wary of others. But, but there's, there, there's value out there in EM. Just to push back against the weaker dollar story, as we have seen the dollar strengthen this year on the strength of the economy, markets are discounting mechanisms. People are going to be looking to a Fed that will be tightening at some point. How concerned are you about better data spurring expectations for rate hikes, even as soon as 2022, causing the dollar to strengthen despite all of these dynamics? That's what we've seen, Lisa. That's what we see. We've priced the first hike at the end of 2022. We've priced another three stroke four for 2023. What are the Fed dots saying? The Fed dots are saying they're not hiking through the end of 2023. And the rhetoric from the Fed is not changing. They've got a high growth forecast for the market for this year. They've got six and a half percent. They've got unemployment rate of three and a half percent in 2023. And still they're saying we're not hiking rates. And you have to listen to Powell. The reaction function from the Fed has changed. Mm. Inflation, with average inflation targeting, they can ignore right. transitory rises in inflation. They can look through it. They're targeting the labor market. They're targeting maximum employment. Not full employment, maximum employment. And maximum employment for all. They're right. looking for, for underemployment to come down. They're looking for low income to go up. All the stuff we saw in 18 and 19, Powell wants to get back to, and that's going to take time. Uh, Lee Farage, very direct. Chris Collins of Bloomberg News felt we were fair and unbalanced yesterday with a focus on Manchester United. What's it like to be Liverpool, where last night you were tied with Leeds and your team is wandering off to the Super League? Were you medicated? Um, I, I will be if it carries on like this, quite honestly, Tom. Yeah, it's, it, it's not easy being a Liverpool fan. Well, this season hasn't been easy after, after last year, which was, which was a gift. And then the Super League news is, is, is not a positive in my mind. Lee, I'm not sure how many people out there feel sorry for Liverpool fans right now. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> I've got to say, we're enjoying it a little bit. Lee, it's going to catch yeah. up. Lee Ferrich, State Street Head of America's Macro so Strategy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.